When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Katie Coldiron, and I'm from Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And I have the great pleasure to be interviewing today Carl Van Ness, the author of The Making of Florida's Universities, Public Higher Education at the Turn of the 20th Century, released this year from the University Press of Florida. Carl Van Ness is University Librarian Emeritus at George A. Smathers Libraries at the University of Florida. A native Floridian, he served as an archivist in the library's special collections unit for 38 years. In 2006, he was appointed as university historian by UF President Bernie Machin. As historian, Van Ness lectured and wrote frequently on subjects related to the university's past. He retired in 2022. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Carl. Thank you, Katie, and thank you for inviting me, and uh, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. Um, So I have to tell you, as someone who, while I'm not from Florida, I truly do feel like a product of Florida public higher ed, um, having studied and worked at the University of Florida and now working at FIU um, down here in Miami. And I just found your book so informative and I learned so much and honestly, um, a lot that can contextualize, I think, for a lot of readers. kind of things that they see in the news about about Florida higher ed. Um, so just to start off, I really wanted to ask you about kind of how this project uh, came to be. Yeah. Um, before I explain why I wrote the book, I should reveal how I came to write the book. Uh, as you mentioned, I worked uh, for 38 years in the uh, Department of Special and Area Studies Collections at the University of Florida. I served as the university archivist and then since 2006 as the university's official historian. As such, I became very familiar with the school's history and more importantly, its uh, official and unofficial records. Uh, And within the archives, I was discovering some amazing things about the university's history, um, events and stories that had never been revealed, which often conflicted with the university's official history. Uh, later, my research expanded to Florida State University and then Florida A&M, A&M University, which is Florida's only public historically black university. And again, I was finding these stories that had never been written about. Uh, in some cases, the stories were known, but uh, no one had written about them because I guess they conflicted with the positive images that universities uh, try to convey to the outside world. I want to be clear that this is not an institutional history, and it is as much a political history as it is a history of public higher education. Uh, of course, no state university system has ever been free of political interference. You would be naive to think that would even be possible. Uh, state universities are creatures of specific political acts created by uni- uh, passed by legislatures and signed into law. However, some states have experienced more intrusion than others, and Florida are, uh, probably ranks higher than most. Uh, so perhaps we need a ranking system for political interference in academia, in addition to the many other ways that colleges and universities are ranked, although in this case you'd probably want a high number rather than a low number. Um, there is a body of historical literature dealing with politics and higher education, Uh, But that literature tends to focus on academic freedom or the lack thereof. Um, My study avoids that topic, even though I think it's an important topic. I'd love to uh, follow up on my 
current book. Uh, but instead, my book focuses on how politics and the governance of state universities intertwine. Uh, the politics behind public higher education policy is a facet of history that has only recently been taken up by historians. Uh, Adam Harris's excellent book on the history of the public black colleges entitled The State Must Provide is a recent example. Of course, the institutions themselves would prefer that we focus on other things, uh, the curriculum, uh, student life, sports, but stay away from politics. Uh, political history also tends to be top-down history. It's often written from the perspective of those making laws and those that have no, that knows that have to comply with uh, with the laws and the dictates of the state capital. Uh, my book focuses on the people at the receiving end of those dictates, namely the presidents of the three oldest state colleges uh, during the period of 1884 to 1927. And I tried to let them tell the story as much as possible through their correspondence. And uh, I tried not to get in the way with a lot of unnecessary interpretation. Uh, they had a lot to say, and they were, for the most part, not happy campers. Uh, it's a litany of woes, for the most part. Um, and there was also an intermediate group between the presidents and the state capitol, and that was the Florida Board of Control. These were the five men who ostensibly governed higher education, but were often relegated to the role of uh, bearer of bad news uh, particularly in regards to the budget. So we get their opinions and reflections as well. Thank you so much for that. And just kind of following up on that, um, I was hoping you could give us, um, for those that might not be familiar, kind of an idea of what higher education in Florida looked like at the turn of the 20th century and particularly compared to, to other states um, in the rest of the U.S. Sure. Uh, well, first we need to compare Florida to the other southern states. Um, before we compare it to the rest of the nation, because the, say, the South has always had its, you know, has its own peculiar history, and that applies to the history of education as well. Uh, prior to 1905, uh, Florida's educational landscape um, looked a lot like that of the other Southern states. Uh, Florida supported six schools for white students and uh, was on the verge in 1905 of creating even more. Uh, only two of those schools, the Florida State College in Tallahassee and the University of Florida in Lake City, could be considered post-secondary, although both of those schools maintained high school departments simply because there were not enough high schools in Florida to supply college-eligible students. The other four schools taught mostly at a secondary level of that. Uh, the number of high schools in Florida is, at this time is debatable. Uh, the oldest and largest was Duval High School in Jacksonville. Uh, there were also decent high schools in Pensacola and Tampa. But for most white children in Florida, education ended well before the eighth grade. Uh, in fact, most schools, uh, if they had grading had a grading system, and also probably stopped with the eighth grade. And after that, if you continued at your education at school, you probably were in some kind of common classroom with children of various ages. Um, so, and the number of students beyond the eighth grade could be counted probably in the low 100s. And then when you get to the 11th and 12th grade, we're talking about dozens, not, not even hundreds. And here I'm talking about public schools only, uh, wealthier families and in access to private academies and schools. For black students, the situation was far worse. Uh, there were no public high schools, and the one state-supported school, Florida State Normal Industrial School, took in both grammar school students as well as high school students. It was primarily a normal school, a teacher training school, and we'll talk more about normal schools later. But to be certified as a grammar school teacher in the state of Florida, you only needed an eighth grade education, and then you had to, score, you had to have a minimal score on a county examination. And uh, those, those county examinations uh, I've read were very, very easy. So it's very uh, easy to become a teacher in Florida at the turn of the century. Uh, there were no public high schools for, for black students, only grammar schools. However, there were a number of schools supported by philanthropic organizations and churches, uh, and the quality of education at those schools were 
is far better than what black students received in public schools. And then in some rare instances, the, the, the education available there was even better than what was available locally for white students. Again, Florida's situation uh, paralleled that of other Southern states. So how did the South compare with the rest of the nation? Well, not very well. Uh, by the turn of the century, uh, the high school movement was in full swing throughout much, uh, throughout much of the nation. Uh, children were encouraged to extend their education into, the, into senior high school. Um, before in the Civil War, children were discouraged, for the most part, uh, from attending um, school like beyond the third grade. Uh, colleges and universities by this time had adopted the standards set by the Carnegie Institute for the Advancement of Teaching, which required a 12th grade education and specific course units for admission. But it's going to take the southern states uh, several decades to catch up with the rest of the nation. So uh, in the rest of the nation, you have a, you know, the high schools, that the modern high school is, is, more, is, is, is a readily apparent, uh, along with the modern college. In Florida and in the south, uh, you're still, there's a lot of debate um, as to, you know, what is actually a college in the south. It's very hard to define uh, colleges in the south. Uh, it's very difficult to talk about post-secondary education when there's very little secondary education. Um, Andrew Sled, who was the first official president of the University of Florida, claimed that 90% of Southern colleges were sham institutions guilty of producing intellectual infants. And he was not exaggerating. Wow. Um, that is that is quite a, a characterization. Um so um, kind of following up on that last question, um, I was hoping um, you could tell us a bit about the origins of the three universities that you focus on primarily in, in this uh, work, specifically what we know today as the University of Florida in Gainesville, um, Florida State University in Tallahassee, and, and Florida A&M University. Yeah, um, it's an interesting question. Where to start? Uh, because of the age of the institutions has often been questioned. But let's just go with what's engraved on their respective seals. Um, uh, Florida State University has the date 1851, which is the date for the Seminary Act of 1851, which established two schools, uh, one west of the Swanee River and another east of the same river. Uh, the West Florida Seminary opened in 1857, it became the Florida State College in 1901. It is now Florida State University. The East Florida Seminary opened in 1853, and that's the date on the University of Florida seal. However, that school, unlike the West Florida Seminary, did not evolve to become the University of Florida. Uh, the East Florida Seminary was never more than a regional prep school, and there is very little to connect it with uh, the University of Florida other than location. The East Florida Seminary was located in Gainesville for most of its history, and the University of Florida today is located in Gainesville. Uh, the university's true origins are in the Morrill Act of 1862, which established the nation's network of land-grant colleges. Florida's land-grant college was chartered in 1870, but it did not open until 1884 in Lake City. It was the first public college in Florida and its opening coincided with the opening uh, of Florida's first private college, which was Rollins College in Winter Park. This was 39 years after Florida became a state. So for 39 years, the state of Florida did not have a single college, neither a public or private. In 1903, the land-grant college was designated as the state university, and in 1906, it was relocated to Gainesville. Florida A&M University began as the state's normal school for black teachers in 1889 in Tallahassee. It was one of two normal schools uh, established that year. The other was the state normal uh, for white teachers, which was uh, which opened in Defuniac Springs, uh, which uh, is in the Western Panhandle. Uh, in 1890, Congress passed the Second Moral Act, which provided additional funding to the land grant colleges. However, States which excluded African-Americans from their land-grant colleges were required to designate another school to receive half the funds. 
So the state normal school uh, in Tallahassee became the recipient and was renamed state normal and industrial school. When Congress passed the Second Morrill Act, it was understood that the land grant schools for blacks would not be the same as those for whites. The, uh, the white land grant schools provided practical training in agriculture and engineering in conjunction with a liberal arts education. But as Adam Harris noted in the book that I cited earlier, the Second Morrill Act did not initially expand educational opportunities for African Americans. It actually degraded black education. Uh, Southern states who used, used the moral cons as an excuse to defund black schools and to direct black students into vocational education. So initially, the black land grant schools were not colleges in any sense of the word. Later on, um, you know, they evolved to become colleges and universities. At the turn of the century, the state normal and industrial school operated with an annual budget of about $18,000 of which $15,000 was from federal, not state funds. It was renamed the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical College in 1909, and it is now uh, Florida A&M University. Thanks so much for that. Um, so um, one thing I did notice about your book is that it's really structured around um, this um, particular piece of legislation in the state of Florida called the Buckman Act of 1905. Specifically, you have kind of pre-Buckman Buckman and, and after Buckman. Um, so I was hoping you could explain, um, you know, what exactly was the, the Buckman Act of 1905 and how did it change public higher education in Florida? It created a revolution in um, higher education in Florida. Uh, first of all, the Buckman Act is uh, one of the longest acts uh, passed by the state of Florida at the time. It's um, a very complicated act. Um, but for uh, the purposes of our discussion today, I'm going to boil it down to three things. Uh, the act abolished, revoked, and vacated. That's the phrase used in the act. The six state schools for white students and created two ostensibly new schools, a college for white women and a university for white men. The act did not impact significantly the one school for black students. Um, second, the act mandated gender segregation for white students, but not black students. And third, it created a governing board for the state schools, uh, which is called the Florida Board of Control. Until the Buckman Act, Florida's historical trajectory was similar to the other southern states, which I described earlier, in that it supported an array of small schools, uh, most of which taught at a secondary school level and sometimes even below that. In other Southern states, those schools evolved to become colleges and are now universities or their branch campuses of state universities. Uh, Florida, though, decided to change course and do something completely different. It abolished its state schools and focused on the development of two schools for white students. The act is usually seen as an act of creation in that it created a university system, but it was as much an act of destruction as it was creation. It uh, created a university system, but it also destroyed uh, a significant portion of Florida's secondary education at the time. Henry Buckman, uh, who was a legislator from uh, the city of Jacksonville, uh, for whom the act is named, uh, stated that the primary purpose of the act was to compel local districts to support higher uh, secondary education. Uh, he wanted to remove the state of Florida from supporting high schools. That was the and the, the, the job of the county districts. But it would take some time for the local school districts to fill the void created by the Buckman Act. Eventually, though, it had the desired effect and the number of high school students increased significantly following Buckman. And that's really the one undisputed success of the Buckman Act. Uh, it, hast it hastened the creation of high schools throughout Florida. It would have happened anyway, but uh, it, it happened sooner. I use the adjective ostensibly when I stated that the act created two new schools. It, uh, it was widely perceived at the time that the Florida State College in Tallahassee and the University of Florida and Lake City would survive as the two new schools, but that proved to be only half true. Uh, the Florida State College in Tallahassee did become the Florida State College for Women and is now FSU. 
The state university, though, was relocated to a campus on the outskirts of Gainesville, making Florida the only state in modern history to abandon the campus of its state university and then move it elsewhere. If that sounds crazy, it was. Um, and the book goes into considerable detail as to why and how that happened. Um, but to, uh, to make a long story short, uh, town gown relations in Lake City were, uh, were the pits. And uh, there had been a number of disputes with uh, uh, local politicians and leading citizens of Lake City. Uh, they were constantly getting involved in the uh, affairs of the, of the university. And it was felt that the university would, would never flourish in that environment. Essentially, Lake City's leading citizens compelled the relocation by constantly inserting themselves in the affairs of the university. Um, I should also point out that the city of Gainesville put together an impressive public relations campaign. So there was this incentive to leave Lake City and fight, go somewhere else in the city of Gainesville uh, gave the state an opportunity to do so. As to the rationale for separating men and women, uh, that's always been a mystery uh, because most of the pre-Buckman schools were co-educational and the trend nationally in 1905 was towards co-education. So, you know, why is Florida suddenly going in the opposite direction? Well, the decision was primarily economic. If both schools were to be co-educational, they would be competing for both money and students. And they felt in this way that uh, that would be avoided and that most of the money um, would go to the university. That didn't turn out to be the case. And I'll explain that a little bit later. Um, but Henry Buckman had this idea that students from the colder climates uh, would be enticed to Florida and uh, support the schools financially with tuition fees. Um, that was hopelessly naive, um, but in his defense, he was not the first person to invoke educational tourism in Florida. In fact, um, Stetson University in Deland had a very successful program for the University of Chicago that brought, brought in a significant amount of revenue but it would be many years before out-of-state tuition would have any impact on higher education in Florida. Uh, finally, the Buckman Act created a common governing board, the Florida Board of Control, for the three surviving state schools. Prior to Buckman, most of the schools had their respective boards, and those boards had complete autonomy. They could select presidents and faculty. They could alter the curriculum. They could set admission requirements. They could negotiate budgets with the state legislature. After Buckman, the Board of Control would have that responsibility for all uh, three institutions, except for the fact that the Buckman Act made the Board of Control subordinate to the Florida Board of e Education in all matters. The Board of Education was an executive board that consisted of the governor, uh, the superintendent of public instruction, the attorney general, the treasurer, and the uh, secretary of state. I should point out that these are all elected officials and that Florida's executive office was unique in that all the com uh, cabinet members were elected. They were not appointed by the governor. They did not serve at the pleasure of the governor and they often were in conflict with the governor and they wielded considerable power. So Florida has this strong executive office with a weak governor. The, weak, the governor can only serve one four-year term whereas the other cabinet members uh, could be re-elected or often re-elected year after year after year. Uh, so the second half of the book focuses on this 22-year struggle between the two boards, which resulted in uh, the Board of Control losing any autonomy that it thought it might have. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of sets, the Buckman Act sets the stage for uh, what's going to be a very bleak period in Florida's history. Very fascinating, and and obviously um, we'll get into this later. But um, you know this idea of like executive power and control over over universities um, is very fascinating. So um, moving into um, obviously you um, you have these key figures, um, which are you know university presidents, and I think you know a lot of times 
alumni of institutions, you know, presidents usually aren't more than names on buildings, but in this work in particular, they truly are protagonists. Um, so I thought I'd describe it. Yes. <laughs> so I thought I would ask you about some of these specific figures. Um, if you could tell us a bit more about them. Um, so who was Andrew Sled? Um, you had mentioned him earlier, but I, I was hoping you could give us a little more detail on him. Well, Andrew Sled was the last president of the old University of Florida in Lake City, and he was the first president of the new University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh, before he came to Florida in 1904, he had already made a name for himself in Georgia. He taught at Emory College, and while he was there, uh, he published an article in the Atlantic Magazine in 1902 entitled The Negro, Another View which was a blistering dissent on Southern racial orthodoxy. It was primarily an attack on racial violence. Uh, he wrote it um, shortly after he had witnessed a lynching, and it affected him tremendously. Uh, but it went beyond lynching, went beyond that, and advocated for the restoration of voting rights for blacks, and also a larger role for blacks in civil society. The article was not received well in the South, uh, it was met with a violent and vehement reaction by a uh, white supremacist, and eventually Sled was forced to resign his position at Emory. He went on to Yale University, received, received his PhD there. Uh, Sled was an idealist. He was as honest as the day is long, uh, and he, he came to Florida with this uh, educational agenda. He has this vision creating a great university in the South that will lift up the South both intellectually and spiritually. He, uh, Sled was also a minister in the Methodist Church and would later uh, become an influential theologian at Emory. He was also uncompromising, and that was a fatal flaw for any college president at the turn of the century. Uh, Sled came to the University of Florida after a dispute uh, between the faculty and the president, that resulted in the resignation of most of the faculty. And Sled comes in and he immediately starts uh, all these uh, reforms and changes. Uh, he replaced the old faculty. Uh, none of them had doctorates. And he replaces, replaces that, uh, with men who all have PhDs. Uh, and within a year, he had more PhDs on his staff than the University of Georgia. He was very proud of that. He was always prospective parents, uh, prospective, parents of prospective students. Uh, he would always write to, to them and say, we have more PhDs on our staff in the university of Georgia. Uh, when he came, the university only required a 10th grade education for admission, and SLED received permission to raise it to 11th grade, which was the minimum grade uh, required for accreditation. I should point out that none of the state schools were accredited at this time. Uh, the university maintained a high school department, two grades. He eliminated one grade with plans to eliminate the other within a few years did not happen, in fact, it did not happen until around 1930. All of that occurred in one academic year. So it was a radical transformation. Unfortunately, he came at the same time that the Buckman Act is being passed. Uh, in fact, he was here for less than a year when the law was passed. Yeah, the act took effect in June 1905. And then a month later, the Board of Control met to appoint the presidents of the schools. Sled was selected for the University of Florida. Albert Murphy was selected as president of the Women's College, and Nathan Young at uh, Florida A&M. Uh, Nathan Young had already been at Florida A&M. Uh, the Board of Education, though, tried to intervene, and they thought that Murphy, Albert Murphy, should be the president of the university and not Andrew Sled. And this marks the beginning of this 22-year fight between the two boards. This is one month after the act is passed. I mean, the ink is barely dry on the act. And now we all of a sudden have this conflict between the Board of Education and uh, the Board of Control as to who gets to appoint uh, university presidents. Uh, the matter was temporarily resolved in a joint meeting of the two boards where uh, the Board of Education conceded authority to the Board of Control on the selection of presidents. But this is only temporary. Uh, the Board of Education revisited the matter four years later, and this time they assert their authority, and this results in SLED's resignation in April 1909. In future years, 
whenever the Board of Education overruled decisions of the Board of Control, and it would do so on a number of occasions, it would always refer to the decision made in April 1909, saying, we have the authority on all matters. So um, that was the fate of Andrew Sweat. Uh, he was also responsible for moving uh, the University of Florida from Lake City to Gainesville. That was no mean feat. Um, he had to do so under political pressure. Uh, so even after he was appointed president, the politicians in Tallahassee found ways to make his life miserable. Uh, the comptroller in particular uh, simply refused to pay bills at times. And um, this led to actually led to strikes by uh, laborers on campus. At one, at one point, Andrew Sled is, is threatening to resign because he just can't take it anymore. There's just too many attacks. Uh, a lot of the, some of the attacks were also aimed at his, his position his position on race matters. So um, he did not have uh, uh, a happy time at the University of Florida. And uh, he later on would go back to Emory. And he, uh, like I said before, he became a, a very prominent uh, theologian in the, uh, the Methodist Church. Very interesting. And just to contextualize for the listeners who might not be familiar with Florida, Lake City, the home of the original campus of the University of Florida, is about 50 minutes north of Gainesville. Um, one of my good friends um, when I was at UF was, was from there. So, um, Kyra, you'd mentioned um, in your in that um, explanation um, the figure of Albert Murphy. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about who he was. Yeah. Uh, Albert Murphy ends up being the principal <clears throat> principal voice in my history, and <clears throat> he serves as a kind of narrator of sorts after he assumes the presidency of Flo uh, the University of Florida in 1909. Uh, sadly, there's no correspondence uh, for Murphy during his time at Florida State. It's only after 1909 that we have all his correspondence, and uh, Murphy again had a lot to say. Um, he came to Florida in 1887 as an instructor at the West Florida Seminary and assumed the presidency there in 1891. Uh, then he was president at the University of Florida from 1909 until his death in uh, December 1927. And that's where my narrative ends uh, with his death. Murphy was the polar opposite of Andrew Sled, uh, whereas Sled was idealistic and uncompromising. Uh, Murphy was pragmatic and understood that university presidents had to compromise at times in order to survive. He was not a visionary. Uh, he was under no illusion that Florida at the turn of the century was going to create this ideal university that both Sled and Buckman imagined. Uh, Sled disdained politicians. Murphy didn't particularly like them, but was willing to work with them and work around them, as the case may be. Uh, Sled was a Methodist, Murphy was a Baptist. Uh, they did share one thing in common, though, and that was a clear estimation of the poor quality of Southern education. Uh, neither was willing to compromise on minimum standards for admission uh, or on the quality of teaching. And I'll, I'll talk more about uh, uh, Murphy when we pursue other questions, but uh, that's a good summation of who Albert Murphy was. Uh, when I began my research, I didn't have a high estimation of Murphy, because in some ways he was involved in the uh, firing of Andrew Sled. Um, but as I continued my research, I realized that, you know, this is, this is a very interesting person and he's not the person I thought he was. He was a bit of an opportunist, opportunist at times, but um, for the most part, he was a very successful administrator. And like, as I said, he's, uh, he had qualities that made him a better administrator than, than Andrew Sled. Yeah, and um, I found, I mean, I've never heard of, of a case like this, but um, obviously in your book, you, you show that there are statues of, of Murphy both at Florida State and at the University of Florida. Yeah, the one at the <laughs> University of Florida was like right outside my window. Uh, I looked at Murphy practically every day for a while. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because that statue, he has an open hand and... Um, uh, on after football games on Saturday, if you came in on the campus on Sunday morning, you might find Albert Murphy with a beer can in his hand. It's a common prank. 
Uh, and there's another uh, statue um, at uh, Florida State, which is right on the uh, Landis Green, very close to uh, the building that's named after his wife, uh, Jenny Henderson Murphy. Well, I love that um, anecdote about the um, statue at UF. That's awesome. Um, so finally, uh, and honestly, personally, this is probably the figure that interested me the most while reading your book is um, Nathan Young. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Young was the second president of what is now FAMU. He followed a man named uh, Thomas DeSale Tucker, who was president when vocational education was foisted on the school, much to his displeasure. He was not in favor of this at all. And Tucker was not afraid to voice his opinions on the matter. And he refused to make uh, vocational education a primary concern. He simply wasn't going to go along with the agenda uh, set, being set by Tallahassee. Consequently, he was replaced by Nathan Young in 1901. Uh, Young, too, uh, attempted to give priority to the academic departments. But this, at the same time, he did not denigrate the vocational studies in the same way Tucker did. And he tried to balance the two. And he succeeded for the most part until Kerry Hardy uh, came to the governor's mansion in 1921. Uh, Hardy had a very dim view of education for blacks. He felt that educated blacks would be more likely to leave the state. Florida's economy uh, depended on a pool of cheap and unprotected labor. This is during the period of what we know, know as the, the Great Migration, which began in the early years of the 20th century, continued uh, through uh, World War II, in which millions of African-Americans uh, left the South looking for economic opportunities uh, and also just to flee the oppression of Jim Crow. Uh, in July of 1921, Governor Hardy has the Board of Education enact a list of resolutions that curtailed much of the academic program at AM, including things like languages and other liberal arts uh, education, uh, any, any type of coursework that was considered irrelevant to vocational training. He wanted the Florida AM to be strictly a vocational school. Furthermore, all students were required to enroll in vocational studies, you know, regardless of what their field of study was, except they were you know, going to a to be a teacher. They now had to enroll in vocational classes. And as part of those studies, they were required to perform unpaid labor. And this was often uh, for labor that had been paid previously. Uh, President Young tried desperately to salvage his academic program. Uh, he managed to survive for a couple of years. At one point, they were trying to replace him, but they simply couldn't because they couldn't find anyone willing uh, to uh, serve as the president of, uh, at A&M, uh, largely because uh, Young was his salary was that uh, below uh, that of an assistant professor at the, at the university. In fact, it was the lowest of all the uh, black land grant uh, colleges. His salary was the lowest. And um, so they were unable to replace him, but eventually uh, they forced him out of office. And uh, he was given two weeks to vacate his office after more than 20 years of service. In the wake of Young's dismissal, students began a rebellion that would eventually result in the destruction of several campus buildings. Uh, the rebellion began with a very peaceful petition protesting the firing of President Young that was ignored by the Florida Board of Control. They didn't even respond. That brought uh, on a student strike uh, where the uh, students were demanding that they be paid for the labor as well as amnesty for the strikers. There were a list of a number of demands, but it was primarily economic. Um, when that failed, uh, the students went back to their classes and then some at least engaged in a clandestine operation. And over the space of several months, Three buildings were put to the torch and burned to the ground. At one point, the Board of Control became so concerned that they hired a private investigator to uh, in an attempt to find out who was behind the arson, but they failed to uncover any any evidence uh, or, you know, or who was behind it. Um, the Board of Control was very concerned. Um, previous to this, there had been two massacres in Florida, one at Rosewood and another in Ocoee. Um, 
And the Board of Control was very concerned that uh, the white population in Tallahassee might do something. Uh, luckily, that did not happen. So uh, the man who was ultimately hired to replace Nathan Young was a man named John Robert Edward Lee. And he began his tenure just as Governor Hardy was ending his term. Lee saw this as an opportunity. He quickly reinstated the language courses and other academic courses that the, the Board of Education had eliminated. Uh, and no one on the Board of Control or the Board of Education objected. Under Nathan Young, the college only awarded a Bachelor of Science. Lee added a Bachelor of Arts degree. Again, no one objected. He also received a large grant from the General Education Board, which was a uh, philanthropic organization funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, and he undertook a much needed building reform, building program, excuse me. Um, prior to that, um, the, the building situation at Florida NM was uh, abhorrent. Um, Nathan Young described the dormitories as shacks with uh, no sanitary facilities. In other words, they had outhouses, not, not indoor plumbing. Uh, and a lot of the buildings that were burnt really they needed to be torched, in my opinion. Uh, but anyway, the improvements undertaken by Lee resulted in AM's uh, provisional accreditation in 1931 and full accreditation in 1935. So, in, in the final analysis, the student rebellion was successful as it hastened much needed reforms and improvements, which were totally contrary to what Hardy was trying to do, what he intended. So, I, I find that um, somewhat ironic, but also it is testimony to. Uh, the 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 courage of the students at AM. The events at AM were unknown to me when I first uncovered them. And I was amazed at what I was reading. I said, you know, why was this not common knowledge? Why don't we know about this? Well, it turns out it is common knowledge at AM. Uh, and in recent years, the student activists there have in, invoked the spirit of those earlier students. But uh, there hasn't been very much written. And this is a, a part of Florida history that deserves a, a lot more attention. My book deals with the rebellion from the perspective of several white officials who are witnessing what is happening and realizing they're powerless to stop it. Uh, my hope is that someone will continue this, that will write a story from the perspective of the students so we can learn more about these courageous students who are really risking their lives at every turn. And we know, we know, we you know, we saw what happened to you know, Rosewood and Ocoee. It, it, again, it could, it could easily have happened to Tallahassee as well. Uh, and you know, the story is really amazing. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, obviously, I didn't really know. I didn't know anything about this story or much about Florida A and M before I read this book. And you know, we're talking about university presidents, and you know. Working in a in university administration is never easy, but I think of these three men we've talked about. Nathan Young probably had the toughest time um, because it just shows. I mean, every like um, you know, this was a a place that um, the state did not value. You know, um, higher education for Black Floridians beyond vocation the vocational trades. So. Um, I, it was, Whatever complaints, you know, Sled and Murphy might have had at the uh, University of Florida, uh, and they had a lot <laughs> to complain about, that they paled in comparison to what Nathan Young had to deal with at uh, Florida A&M. Um, and, I, I and I think it's really testimony to his diplomatic skills that he survived even 20 years. Um, he uh, did have a good relationship with the... Uh, uh, superintendent of uh, public instruction, William Sheets, during uh, those years. And I think that helped him. Uh, Sheets was often, um, he often called upon Sheets for advice and they had a regular correspondence. And uh, that, uh, that correspondence was actually kind of interesting because we get a different uh, view of uh, Nathan Young uh, in that correspondence with Superintendent Sheets. Absolutely. So, um Obviously, one thing that really stuck with me from your book is um, obviously, you know, all of us who work in universities know that money and budget is is huge. And when I saw the budget that A&M had to work with compared to um, the other public universities, I was truly in shock. Um, 
So I was hoping that you would tell us a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the budget for the universities and negotiations um, for it um, at these different institutions and how that changed or remained stagnant um, over the years of study. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, Florida operated on a biannual budget uh, with the legislature meeting on odd numbered years. Uh, and budget bottle battles consumed a large part of the college president's time. Uh, they had, they were constantly begging for money. Uh, and, uh, you know, their, their budget requests actually had to go to the Florida Board of Control. Then the Florida Board of Control would look at those budget requests, decide what was realistic, what was not realistic. Uh, and then it, uh, from there it went to uh, state legislature. Uh, prior to 1900, uh, the, the state schools received little money, a uh, little funding from the state. Uh, the University of Florida subsisted primarily off the federal funds allocated by the two Morrill Acts, 1862 and 1890, as well as the Hatch Act of 1885. The two seminaries had their own endowments from federal land grants uh, given prior to statehood, uh, as well as funds from their uh, the respective counties, because both schools served as uh, a local uh, high schools, so the counties supported them. Uh, this was common throughout the South. Uh, after Reconstruction ended in 1977, uh, Southern state governments were dominated by conservative politicians who favored low taxation, low spending. So I noted earlier that there was very little interference, political interference, um, in the state universities prior to Buckman, that may have been because of the fact that they were not getting very much money from the state state government. Uh, so if they're not getting any money from the state, why would the state interfere in their internal affairs? Um, other states uh, mitigated budget battles by allocating specific revenue streams to higher education, uh, most often in the form of millage taxes on property, but there are other ways of doing that, maybe tax on, on automobile licenses or taxes on uh, other other forms of consent, gasoline, whatever. Uh, but Florida did not do so until 1927, and only after an intensive lobbying campaign waged by the University of Florida Alumni Association. And the story of that campaign forms the last chapter of the book. And it's one of those stories that I was unfamiliar with prior to doing the research, and I just found it amazing. You know, it's not something you associate with an alumni association. And I had a long, very long relationship with the alumni association during my time at UF. And I just, you know, I couldn't pick, picture the alumni association doing anything like that today. But I'm sure it's totally uh, not, not something they're allowed to do. Uh, but times were different then. And uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to the alumni association because the work they did in 1927 uh, to change the funding system. Uh, was incredibly impactful and uh, really changed. Uh, it made uh, the lives of university presidents uh, much happier. Uh, unfortunately, Albert Murphy uh, would not live uh, to and uh, for that to happen. He dies in December of 1927. His successors, uh, sure, were very happy that they didn't have to wage a uh, battle every two years with the state legislature. The worst battles budget battles occurred in 1921 and 1923, and they were the result of two issues. Uh, one was an unanticipated increase in student enrollment, and the second was the ascendancy of Kerry Hardy, who we met earlier. Uh, in addition to being a racist, Governor Hardy was one of the most tight-fisted governors in Florida's history, and his administration followed that of Sidney Katz, who was a populist governor who was more than happy to spend money. So the budgets of 1917 and 1919 under Katz are two of the best budgets the colleges would receive, and that's followed by two of the worst budgets. From 1919 to 1929, enrollment in American universities rose 50%, 57% on average. By contrast, enrollment at the State College for Women rose 100% and a staggering 250% at the University of Florida. So these are some of the worst years for President Murphy. He's constantly begging the Board of Control to cap enrollment, only to have his pleas rejected each time. And at the same time, he's fighting with the governor and the newly established Budget Commission, 
over funding. And he came very close to resigning. And in fact, I'm surprised he didn't resign. So yeah, budgets uh, take up a good deal in my book. And you, you would think the budget fights would not be very interesting, but uh, they turned out to be some of the more interesting chapters of the book. Definitely. It was it was really fascinating to to read that. I mean, you really, I mean, you know, you hear the word budget and it, you know, for without any context, it's uh, just, you know, funny. Yeah, yeah, it's like... <laughs> But no, it was truly, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, so you wrote this really amazing postscript in the book that um, kind of catches the reader up to the present day because, I mean, everybody that's interested in higher ed, I would argue not only in the United States, but probably on a global level is looking at the state of Florida right now. And, you know, a lot of the topics we've talked about, you know, fighting with a governor, um, you know, um, education of black Floridians. Um, I personally, as an observer living here in the, in Florida and working here at a public university, I am constantly, when I was reading your book, I feel like I'm drawing parallels and I found your postscript really helpful, um, you know, in kind of seeing, you know, perhaps, you know, how you think about this, think about the present, contextualize in this past that you've, you know, studied so extensively. So I was hoping um, you could tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, your perception of the legacies from this time um, that you've, you've wrote about um, how they are manifesting today in Florida's public university system. Yeah. Uh, sadly, Florida has a long history of politics intruding into the academic world in it didn't lessen after my book ends in 1927. Um, the conflict with the Board of Education abated, but the conflicts with governors and the le legislature continued after 1927. And I, as you said, I cover a lot of that in the epilogue, uh, which takes the meter up to, to recent years. At the end, the book was writing itself. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't sure when, when to stop, you know, because every day I'd pick up the newspaper and there was like another attack on the uh, on the college or the, the, or the curriculum or on the academic freedom on, on, on what actually could be taught at a university. And, you know, these events were occurring on a daily basis. So I, I, had, to, I had to stop at some point, you know, so um, I did. Um, but yeah, I mean, Florida, you know, it's had this legacy of uh, political intrusion. Um, but uh, what's going on now, uh, we, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. I mean, we've seen some really uh, bad episodes. Probably the worst episode before this occurred in the late 1950s uh, when the state legislature began an investigation uh, into uh, the investigation of gays and lesbians at, at, uh, in education, not just in the universities, uh, but at the University of Florida. In particular, the impact there was tremendous. About 12 uh, faculty members were forced to resign. Uh, and it had a, just a, a chilling effect on education uh, in the state. Uh, it really just brought the entire state university system into disrepute. Uh, it was very hard to recruit people uh, and to, to Florida after that. Um, and my book, as I said, mentioned earlier, my book does not cover academic freedom cases. Uh, but if you throw those in, uh, it's, it's even worse. Um, I'm not big on historical analogies, but I suppose one could make a comparison with what's going on today with uh, past events. A lot of what's happening, uh, the events at New College, which um, just read an article yesterday about what's happening at New College. Uh, for those who are not familiar with what's going on in New College, New College is a very small uh, public college, has an enrollment of under 900 people, 900 students. And up until now, it was a college with a very open enroll, uh, a very open curriculum. Students were did not have to. They took every class on a pass fail basis, um, but they were required to do a lot of work. But you know the students themselves had to determine the pace of the work, and so and, and, and most of the students had a very high SAT. Uh, and now the, the school is being transformed into what apparently is yesterday I've read a uh, school for athletes to take classes in. Uh, sports psychology and sports management and things like that. Um, I guess when you can make a comparison with uh, that with what happened at AM in the 1920s, where uh, Hardy was uh, forcing AM uh, to be strictly a vocational school. 
And I can also see some parallels with other events, uh, particularly uh, recent uh, higher uh, presidential search at the Florida Atlantic University, where um, uh, Florida, uh, they had a search and they brought, they got the list down to four or five people. They submitted the list to the board of governors. And then the board of governors says, well, we don't like your list. Uh, it's very reminiscent of what happened to Andrew Sled in 1909. By the way, there were other uh, times in our history where uh, the governor or someone <clears throat> intervened in a presidential search. Um, so yeah, there's just so much going on right now um, that uh, it's it's hard to appraise what 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 the situation and you know where where is this going to end? Definitely, and you know, kind of, I'm I'm watching this and experiencing it from Miami, which is Florida is a huge state. It's a very regionalized state. Miami, South Florida is in a lot of ways its own little world. But um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but we're definitely I, I've um, you know we are everybody's very attentive to what's going on right now and seeing how that you know manifests and what that means um, for us down here at a much younger public university than the ones you talk about. Um, so, um, you know, before I get into this last question, I just want to, you know, thank you. And, and as an archivist and someone trying to build a, a career in academia through university libraries, I really admire, you know, what you've done here. Um, and it's definitely a model for me going forward as someone who's very interested in, you know, not only the history of our universities, but how you know, the role they play in our larger communities and in our state and um, how they're impacted by, you know, all these like, you know, political um, trends. So um, I just, you know, I, I love to see um, a university librarian or archivist, you know, publishing their manuscripts. So I think that's wonderful. <laughs> there was a time when uh, archivists were being unseemly for an archivist to uh, engage in his own research particularly using the materials that he, he or she had access to. Um, but, you know, times have changed. So, and uh, so we're, we're archivists are now allowed to, to do, to write and do research. So I encourage you to do the same. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, what I would love to do is uh, kind of follow up uh, um, my, this book with another book. I'm doing some research now. Uh, this time I want to carry on the history, but instead of looking at administrators, I, I want to look at faculty. I'm looking at several faculty collections um, and trying to tell the story of higher education of Florida from the perspective of the faculty rather than the administration. That sounds really awesome. And definitely I will be um, looking out for, for that next manuscript. Um, you kind of, I mean, obviously you, you answered um, my final question for you, which is what you're currently working on, but is there any, you know, other projects you're, you want to share or is this you know, the prime, your primary focus right now? It's my primary focus now, but if I have time, uh, I would love to do something on academic freedom. I probably will. Uh, address the academic freedom issues in the, in the next manuscript, um, simply because, I mean, we're dealing with faculty issues, ex-faculty. Um, but uh, yeah, I would love to do a, a history of academic freedom, academic freedom cases uh, in the state of Florida, because there have been so many, very so many uh, in Florida. It'd be very timely. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people kind of looking at Florida right now think that, you know, a lot of things just popped up out of the blue, whether it's the presidential ambitions of our governor, Ron DeSantis, or um, whatnot. But it, you know, I mean, a lot of this, you know, there have been political battles, as you show in this work, um, you know, over the decades, over a century old. Well, so, um, as, as I point out in the epilogue, <clears throat> you, know, you know, the Republicans in the state of Florida have had a monopoly on, uh, on government since 1998. And uh, this is very similar to what was going on earlier because the Dem was the Democratic Party at that time. Uh, you know, the Republican Party was almost non-existent in Florida until the 1970s. Um, but throughout our Florida's history, one political party has dominated uh, politics and has had a monopoly. And when you give uh, one political party that much authority and that much power, then you know there's going to be a tendency to uh, abuse that power. Um, and there's just been a, only a few uh, years where we've had, you know, contested authority, where we've had 
more than one political party. And so, yeah. Well, um, thank you so much, Carl, for um, for speaking with me about this really incredible work. Um, yeah. and, and this is um, The Making of Florida's Universities, Public Higher Education at the Turn of the 20th Century, and it's available from the University Press of Florida. Thank you. Thank you.